Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on Bone Talk. I'm excited to get started with some great and inspirational information and delighted to be joined today by Dr. Betsy Clark. First, let me introduce myself. I'm Elizabeth Thompson, the CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Now let's meet Betsy. Author, speaker, and hope advocate, Dr. Elizabeth Betsy Clark is a healthcare professional who has worked extensively with individuals facing challenging illnesses and those struggling with loss and grief. She's the former CEO of the National Association of Social Workers and the author of Choose Hope, Always Choose Hope, a book to help people recognize and use the power of hope. Her daily messages of hope can be found at Matters of Hope. And I should say uh, that I had the privilege of getting to know Betsy when we were both at Sea Change. As we begin our conversation today, we'll be learning more about hope. And for people who have osteoporosis or who are perhaps providing care to someone with osteoporosis or other life-altering diseases, a positive outlook and hope are important concepts. Betsy, the importance of hope. What is hope and why is it so important? Hi, Liz. So happy to have the opportunity to talk about hope because most people don't understand it very well. Uh, most people have never thought about hope, and we all just assume that everyone hopes in the same way, meaning the way we hope. In actuality, though, hope is, is a really complex concept, and it's intensely personal. And when you say, what is the importance of hope? Well, we all know that hope is an essential experience of the human condition. And its purpose has been written through the centuries as uh, guarding against despair. Yet we've done research on hope for 60 years and no universal definition of hope exists. Most people and for centuries, people have believed or considered hope a fundamental emotion. And it is now identified as a positive emotion like joy or love. I think the important thing there is that if hope is an emotion, everyone has the capacity to hope. We do know from research that hope has an authentic biology containing two components, one of cognition, which means thinking, and another of feeling. This means that hope can not only be conceptualized as an emotion, but it must include a thinking process. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes because I think it's a really important concept that people sometimes miss. We know that hope research continues to advance our understanding of hope. But I have a simple definition I use for hope when I'm talking to others. I say that hope is a way of thinking, feeling, and acting. And it takes all three of those, thinking, feeling, and acting, for it to be hope. So that, Betsy, really pushes us. And, and hope isn't just wishing or magical thinking. You 
know, a lot of people think it is that, and they sort of disparage the idea of hope. But hope is not the same as wishing, because hope requires both a goal and a plan. Wishing is usually passive. You know, I, I wish I'd win the lottery. That's passive. <laughs> and it rarely includes much personal action. You may buy a lottery ticket, but really you're not out there planning to win the lottery. So if it has no personal action and there's no attempt to achieve a goal, it really then is wishing or magical thinking, but that isn't hope. What about hope and being optimistic? This is another area where many people think optimism and hope are the same thing. Well, optimism is a positive attitude that can be useful in life. Some of you may recall the story of Pollyanna, the little girl who only saw the positives in every situation. We tend to like optimistic people and we admire their outlook. However, occasionally, optimism refuses to acknowledge problems or to acknowledge anything negative. When that happens, optimism becomes inflexible. I mean, we all know people probably at work or in our lives who are just constantly optimistic. And while we think of that often as a vir virtue, it can also be fairly annoying. Some optimism, again, has no goals or any kind of plan to achieve an outcome. You started to talk about this a few minutes ago, but let's go back to it. Do people hope the same way, or are there different ways to hope? You know, there are many different ways to hope, but there are some common patterns. For example, one family or one person may use a religious or a spiritual framework for their hope. If you have been in a situation where someone has said, your prognosis is what, or your diagnosis is what, sometimes you'll hear someone who uses a very strong religious framework saying, you can't know that, only God or my higher power can know that for sure. So some people hold very firmly to that, and it's very useful to them. But others use a form of science-based hope, and that's hope that is linked to facts or statistics. These are people who spend a lot of time online going through research studies, trying to figure out how to hope and what to hope for based on science or facts. Then there's another category of people who link hope to personal or family responsibility, where they think the outcome of a situation may depend at least partially on what they do and how they care for others. Just to clarify this a little bit, my husband in college was a math major. I majored in social work. You could not have two more divergent views about <laughs> than a mathematician and a social worker. It's something to sort of learn about yourself and to learn about those you love that we hope differently and we have to be respective of that difference. So understanding that we have differences in hope, how does a person learn to create hope? Actually, hope is a learned behavior in, in most ways. It develops though within a particular culture, different cultures hope differently. It also has a historical context. And what I mean by that is, if a child were diagnosed today with leukemia, a hopeful outlook would be very different than what it was, say, 50 or 40 years ago because of the progress that's been made. So we know that there is a historical component to hope. What we hope for might not have been possible in the past. It might not be possible in the future. But we also know our education plays a role. The more highly educated we are, the more we may re rely on those facts, figures, and statistics. 
We know that life experience has a lot to do with it, and current situations also contribute to how you hope. I was raised in a very stoical family. We were never encouraged to be moved to tears for any situation. That, That sounds unusual, but that's the way we grew up. So almost no one in our family ever cries. It's so unusual if someone cries. My mother always used a, um, a belief about this too shall pass. That was a very stoical way that she expressed hope. So I grew up in a family that viewed hope in one, one perspective that others might not always share. So as a result, each person's hope is very personal and individual. And probably the most important point is that no one can define hope for another person. Betsy, thank you for sharing that about your family. Talk to us a little bit more about the impact that family does have on how we hope. Well, families are great supporters of our hope. In fact, someone said once, uh, home is where the hope is. And I think that's a wonderful thought, home is where the hope is. However, family members may not only hope differently from the way you hope, but they also may have different hopes about the same situation. They want, let's say, just take an illness. They, uh, one person in the family wants the person who's ill to try something new, to take a, a new clinical trial. The person who's ill doesn't wish to do that. It isn't hoping for that, that uh, aspect of care. And that can cause conflict within the family when there are two people who hope differently. We see that in healthcare frequently, where different family members have different goals for hope. And that can create quite an interesting, not just intrafamilial, but a conflict for healthcare professionals and family members as well. If your family can't support your hope, if they can't understand your hope or what it means to you, it becomes much harder to maintain that hope. If family members are constantly questioning why you are you know, moving to another place or why you are trying a new job or something along that line, it becomes very difficult if your family can't understand the hope you have. And one other important aspect is when someone is ill or is in a personal crisis, what we want most of all, I think, is for others to accept the reality of our situation. If you've ever heard someone say about a patient, they can't be in that much pain, what does that mean? We've stopped using that phrase in healthcare today, but we used to hear it every now and then. But when someone's in a personal crisis or, you know, they said an illness or some situation, we want people to believe and understand our feelings, our symptoms, our fears, our beliefs, and most importantly, our hopes. And and it's easy to get to that point just by asking something, tell me about your hope. What are you hoping for? That allows a beginning conversation. Thank you for sharing that. And I have had in my life more in cancer than in our field of osteoporosis, people share some very personal thoughts about what their hopes were, even understanding that sometimes the hope was for a peaceful passing. So thank you for reminding us of that, Betsy. You're welcome. Can hope be measured? You know, we've made such progress in hope research that we know hope can now be examined. It can be measured and it can be taught. We can actually teach people how to be better hopers. And we now have hope scales that have been around, I don't know, for 20 years or so to determine high hope and low hope individuals. 
And that's important. If you just think about a child and whether or not that child becomes a high hoper or a low hoper, the difference in going forward in the positive outlook, all those things can be impacted by someone's hope level. There are a lot of hope scales online. If somebody just goes online and, and you know looks for hope scales, they will find several that are out there. Well, I want to say I am so privileged to have known and worked and learned from you. You have inspired me to be a high hoper. So uh, thank you for, for that, Betsy. Is there such thing as a crisis of hope? There is. We get into hope crises periodically. Uh, remember, though, that a, a crisis, by definition, is time-limited. I always liked crisis theory, and I, and I started out working in an emergency room, so I think I have a crisis personality. Uh, my friends and family may attest to that. But <laughs> crises actually only last, generally, last from six to eight weeks, almost no longer than six to eight weeks. After that, the crisis has either been resolved or the individual has found a way to adapt to it and it's no longer a crisis. So with hope, there can be hope setbacks. A person may become discouraged or depressed by certain news or happenings. But the message we want to give, even if there is a crisis of hope, is to never stop hoping, never to give in to hopelessness. Hope always stands there waiting, and it's waiting to help you move forward and to cope. And one of the things, Liz, that I think is important the Chinese characters for crisis mean danger and opportunity. One positive aspect of a crisis is that opportunity may result from it. And when the crisis is resolved, you're stronger. You realize that you have greater internal resources than you thought. What a beautiful thing to remember. So talk to us then, Betsy, about how we can maintain hope over the long haul like with a chronic illness or a problem that won't be easily solved? Well, first of all, I think we have to remember that hope isn't static. I like the concept of the kaleidoscope of hope. You know, you, you ha you're looking through a kaleidoscope and you've got this picture up there and then you turn it a little bit and the picture shifts, but it's always up there. And I think of hope that way, that sometimes hope shifts, but it's always there. Uh, we know that old hopes may not be sufficient for a current situation, and we know that hope will change as circumstances change. But we don't always think about the fact that hope can be revised as needed and new hope goals can be formed. Sometimes we need help in revising those goals or reforming our goals, but hope can certainly change with the circumstances and hoping can continue. Your hope for the past may not, in fact, probably will not, be your hope for the future. We sometimes forget that hope, hope doesn't just come and stay in one form throughout months and years in life. It changes. Something else you can do, though, for the long haul is to give yourself permission to hope. And don't let the opinions of others limit how or for what you hope. You absolutely have the right to be hopeful. You have other rights in health care and and in law, but you have the right to be hopeful. One other thing I think is important too is to be precise in your hope. If you are precise about what you're hoping for, this will force you to deal with the here and now and to take responsibility for your hope. Remember, hope requires 
goals and that action plan. So if you are precise in your hope, it will force you to state your goals, at least to yourself, and determine your plan of action. Finally, with regard to maintaining hope over the long haul, hope and help go together. Don't be afraid to ask for and to accept help when you're struggling to maintain your hope. That's a very difficult thing to do. Need help with your hope and be afraid or unwilling to ask for that help. So if a person is feeling low on hope, how can they find more hope and become more hopeful overall? You know, hope often appears unexpectedly, and I think at surprising places and at surprising times. I think it's essential to be open to hope and to be on the lookout for signs of hope. And some people say, well, what good does that do? Well, I think hope signs can help you move in a different direction. I always kind of laugh at this because I come from a family of football fanatics. And every time the team is playing, people appear in their shirts that have the name of the team on it with slogans, with, you know, all kinds of things, as though somehow wearing that shirt is going to have an impact on the outcome of that football game. So if we're able to easily accept that, that people have all kinds of hope symbols that they use um, in their daily life, let's think about symbols that will help us with regard to hope. And I'd like to just tell one story. I know, as you know, that my only sister had a a life-limiting illness diagnosed when she was 41. And she was given a prognosis of about two years. She lived actually 13 years, and I would say she lived very fully. One of the things my sister wanted most to do was to take a trip to Alaska. And as her illness progressed and she went through surgery and chemotherapy and radiation and surgery again, and she had to learn to walk again, and et cetera, she kept her eye on what she wanted to do in whatever time she had left. So one year she sold her house and for the holiday that year, she gave each of us a tour package to Alaska. Now, that was in December, and the tour wasn't until summer. And in the summertime, it was becoming apparent that she was going to have to enter treatment again. But we did go on that cruise. Our whole family went, my my brothers, my sister, myself, all of our spouses. It was a wonderful, a wonderful 10 days. But the thing I remember most about it wasn't the scenery or the whales or the eagles or whatever. It was that we stopped at a little village called Ketchikan, Ketchikan, and there was a store there that sold goods from Russia. And we spent some time in that store. And there were things that we thought were really clever and cute. But she kept going back to a painted barrette. And I saw her look at it several times. And I was unclear whether she was going to buy it or not. But she did buy it. Now, she knew she was going to go home to chemotherapy. And she would lose her hair again. But she bought it anyhow. Now, to me, I, I own that barrette today. And that is a symbol of, no, I do. It's a symbol of hope for me that she was such a a hopeful person and she was unwilling to let the situation define her hope in in that way. So I think that symbols of hope are are particularly important. There there are two other things, Liz, that I tell people if, if they're trying to find hope or remain hopeful. First of all, you can stockpile hope. You can read hopeful books, you can read hopeful articles, you can watch hopeful programs, go to hopeful movies, you can create a playlist of hopeful songs, you can keep track in a journal of hopeful things that happen, 
you can find a hopeful support group and you can send messages of hope to others. But it's important to let hope into your life and to collect hope, so to speak. And then the other thing that I think is important is to practice hope. And this is where I think hope can be taught. You can regularly speak words of hope to yourself. We know from psychology how, how important self-talk is, how self-talk can lead to self-fulfilling prophecies. But each person can develop a mantra of hope and use it in times of stress. My own favorite mantra of hope are the words spoken by Julian of Norridge in the 14th century. She said, and this is a quote, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That mantra is always comforting to me. It's, it just tells me that hope has quite a power, and I, I love reading that mantra. And then, I course, love all of those, and the reminder that hope can be a choice that we make. And again, you highlighted for us earlier that it's an action plan. So we can stockpile it, we can watch movies, we can make playlists, and we can repeat beautiful mantras. And we can choose to move into a life that's more hopeful. Thank you for reminding us of that. But what happens if our hopes are broken and we feel hopeless? Sometimes a person can become what older researchers have referred to as hope lost. And one of the things that we know for certain is that it's much easier to prevent someone from becoming hope lost than it is to move them out of hopelessness. The concept of broken hope, which is a concept I like, it's not exactly as though hope is lost, it's just temporarily broken. But it was studied 50 years ago. And it was described as a loss of faith or a breakthrough of doubts. We know that broken hope accompanies stress and failure or major disappointment. But one of the things that I think we overlook today, and you know, I think that many theorists would argue that hope isn't lost so much as hope is taken away by an event that happens suddenly or something someone says, often unintentionally. We talk about dashed hopes. My hopes were dashed. And that's actually the sort of definition in my mind of broken hope. But we say things sometimes that others are hearing or listening to or internalizing that we aren't aware of the power or the consequences of our words. Just there are two phrases that I think should be eliminated from all of our vocabularies. The first is, there is no more hope. There is always hope. And the other is, it's hopeless. Again, there is always hope. But think about being someone in a situation where someone says to you, this is hopeless, or there's no more hope. I can't think of any words that would be harder to hear or to recover from than those two phrases. We do know what happens when a person becomes hopeless. We know that a hopeless person will become a helpless person. We are absolutely certain of that. If you become hopeless, you also become helpless. Oh, Betsy, that is so sad, but I, I think probably so true and something so many of us have seen. So thank you for talking with us about broken hope and how we can return to a state of always hope. But thinking about that, can hope be false? You know, of all the things that I talk about, this is probably the one that people disagree with me most. 
Hope, by definition, can never be false. It is no more possible than false truth. Researchers stress that it must be reality-based and what a person is hoping should be achievable. The problem comes with when trying to identify what realistic hope is. I think what's happened in our society, in American society, is that we only look anymore at therapeutic hope. And that's hope based on the outcome of a therapy. And so if the therapy hasn't worked as projected, if things haven't gone as we expected, then we say, you know, there's no hope. There is always something else to do. And you, you mentioned earlier, Liz, even at end of lifetime, uh, hope exists even during the end of life. We hope for many things, maybe to leave a legacy for our children, a, a personal experience. We hope that our family won't be too grief-stricken, but hope is, is there always. So if we can move beyond therapeutic hope, then I think we have a, a better understanding of hope in general. I do want to stress, though, we can give people false reassurances. We just can't give them false hope. So when we start talking about false hope, I like to have people think about what are they saying there? I mean, you don't go into someone who's like my sister who had been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness and tell her she would be cured of that illness. We didn't think we could cure it then and we can't cure it now. But you could give somebody false reassurances. And I think that's the easy way out for people sometimes to give false reassurances. But you will never be able to give someone false hope. I mean, hope goals may need to be reformulated and they will change as situations change. But that doesn't mean that anyone's hope is false. I love that distinction between false reassurances and false hope. And that a hope is a living, changing belief entity uh, versus a reassurance, which can sometimes be given by another person more to make the person giving the assurance feel better than for the person receiving it. So thank you for framing that for us. How can a person stand up for their hope and make others recognize how important their hopes are? You know, we've become very used to hearing about self-advocacy in illness and healthcare, that we say you must be a self-advocate. You need an advocate with you when you go for a doctor visit or when you're in the hospital. We talk about how self-advocacy is just essential anymore. But for some reason, we don't think of it as being essential in hope. How do you stand up for your hope? If you can be a self-advocate for your hope, it will reduce your feeling of powerlessness and reduce your helplessness. It gives you some control of the situation and it actually prevents you from sliding into hopelessness. Uh, my sister used to get so annoyed at people who would come up to her in a drugstore or someplace and start talking as though she were dying today. And, you know, oh, you poor thing, et cetera, et cetera. So eventually, she just made it a case of saying, you know, I can only be surrounded by positive people. Or my doctor says I need to think about hope. You know, sort of shutting that down rather than allowing someone else's viewpoint, their misunderstanding to drag down her hope. And I, I think we can stand up for our hope. And we can do that, I think, by always choosing hope, never choosing hopeless. Remember, hope is a choice. So why not, if you have a choice between hope and hopelessness, why not choose hope? I, I like that. And, of course, as a lifelong 
advocate. I love the concept that in anything, and especially in hope, we can help others by reframing how we think of that as we're moving through change. A few minutes ago, you talked to us about hope and help. And talk to us about what is a community of hope and how can you find or develop one? You know, I've, I've been thinking about the concept of community of hope for about 25 years. And I think we still need to do a lot of work with regard to hope. One German theologian noted that it is impossible to find sufficient hope just in ourselves. And I would contend that hope is best when it is something we do together in community with other people. I also feel that our family and our friends and our community should assume some responsibility for helping others hope. Hope isn't just something that you sort of keep in the back of your mind. You're never able to express it because people may deny the possibility, whatever. But we have to be able, I think, to support people in their hope, whatever that hope is. Some people find a community of hope in their churches or synagogues or in a support group. Support groups can be very helpful, I think, for maintaining hope or in volunteer activities. Some medical centers and medical practices do a much better job of providing a community of hope for their patients than other places do. But I think we have a responsibility, if you're a healthcare professional, to be sure you're providing that community of hope for the person you're taking care of. And one caveat here, hope has a transparency about it. You can't encourage hope in others if you aren't hopeful yourself. Anyone will be able to recognize if you're just speaking the words, but you don't really believe it. So when you're trying to be part of a community of hope, first of all, find out what the hope is that the person is hoping for, but be honest in your, in your hope support and, uh, because it will be transparent. Betsy, you have been a beacon of hope for so many, and you've shared such beautiful lessons and thoughts, resources with us today. As we come to a close, what else would you like to share with our listeners? You know, just a final thought or two. We do need to better understand the significance and the utility and the power of hope, not just in our, in, in our everyday lives, but in our communities and in broader society. Anne Frank once said, where there's hope, there's life. It fills us with fresh courage and it makes us strong again. So I'd like to end today with saying, always, always choose hope. Betsy, thank you so much for sharing your passion and expertise with us today. You've certainly helped our listeners and me understand more about hope, how to use it in everyday life, and really the power that it can have in our lives. Listeners, as you leave the podcast today, we encourage you to get additional information and to act. There's a wealth of resources on the National Osteoporosis Foundation's website at n. OF.org. We're also interested to hear your story, which you can share with us at NOF.org. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you tune in again soon to Bone Talk. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.